plant-centered eating, shifting away from the meat-centered was a good choice, a healthy choice, and good for all concerned. But what I'm saying in the 50th anniversary edition is that it is an absolutely essential choice. It is a no contest necessity that we are killing ourselves to feed ourselves. 50 years ago, Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Morlapay changed the way people think about hunger, what causes it and what we can do about it. Spoiler alert, hunger is not due to a scarcity of food. Francis, aka Frankie, is one of the few people who can credibly be said to have changed the way we eat for the better. Since Diet for a Small Planet's initial publication in 1971, Frankie's numerous books and organizations have zeroed in on what is creating hunger in the world. A lack of democracy, a lack of decision-making power is what is driving hunger. Today, her work is just as relevant, and the call to increase our decision-making power is just as loud. And so with a new introduction and updated recipes, Frankie released a 50th anniversary edition of her game-changing book. I'm Tiffany Patton, and this is Real Food Read, the book club and podcast from Real Food Media, where we explore the latest books on food, culture, and politics with the authors themselves. This Real Food Reads pick is a special one, featuring this revolutionary book written by Frankie, who is also the mother of our co-founder, Anna LePay. Frankie, it isn't hyperbolic to say that your first book, Diet for a Small Planet, changed the way people think about agriculture and hunger, and the way people eat. This impact from your earlier works really all of the books you wrote, the talks you gave, the organizations you started, that impact continues to ripple out into the world. And actually, each co-founder at Real Food Media has worked with the first organization you co-founded, the Institute for Food and Development Policy, also known as Food First, which I think is pretty cool. So all of this work stems from the most well-known and sort of hard-hitting phrase from you. It's at the root of your work, right? That hunger isn't caused by a scarcity of food, but a scarcity of democracy. So can you tell us how you got there? What is the origin story for Diet for a Small Planet? Thank you so much. Well, I'd love to go back to that moment. I was 26 at the time, and I had graduated from college during a period of where there was a lot of hope, the civil rights movement, the war on poverty. There was much more of a sense that we could do something to change the basics of our society. And I ended up working for the war on poverty, working very intensely with the poorest people in Philadelphia. But soon I moved to California and I started thinking, wait a minute, I really don't understand the roots of that terrible poverty that people were suffering. And how can I really, really make a difference if I don't understand the causes? Mm -hmm. And so at the time there was a lot of you know, back to the landers doing their thing. And there was food co-ops starting. And so I, I think I was, some light went on that said, okay, food, food, what is more basic? Nothing's more basic than food. If we don't get that right, what else matters? And if I could just understand why people go hungry, that that would then unlock the mysteries of economics and politics. So I really just went to the UC Berkeley library and started putting the numbers together. And at that time, the experts were telling us that scarcity was the cause of problem. There just was not enough. The Population mm-hmm. Bomb book by Paul Ehrlich had exploded, so to speak. And Her. I remember this image of people just sort of this uh, cartoon, I guess, of people 
kind of falling off the earth because <laughs> there wasn't enough space. There wasn't enough food for us. Right. So there I was putting two and two together. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, there's enough food for all of us. The problem is people don't have the power to access it. And that's how I got to that phrase. Because to me, democracy is about all of us having power to, yes, have our essential needs met. And if it's not happening, democracy is missing. And so that's how I got there. I think the reason that I was able to see what I saw was that I wasn't trained as a nutritionist or a developmental expert. And I've come to see that we humans, we see the world through these filters and we don't see what doesn't fit inside our filter, right? And so the world was saying there was scarcity and nobody was questioning that because that was the, the view, right? So I came in without any any free concept, right? I came in with his fresh eyes. And then I was literally putting two and two together. And I was able to see, wait a minute, there is no scarcity. We are actively creating people's uh, deprivation. And so I just want to encourage our listeners that if you're not an expert in our field or in some field, if you're not an expert, it doesn't mean that you couldn't make a big contribution by going into it with oh, what's going on here with fresh eyes? And I just really think that's so important. So much of your book details the link between land, industrial livestock production, and hunger. Can you give us a high-level overview of that? Well, the big shocker for me was the waste built in to our increasingly corporate chemical meat-centered diet. And meat became the center of the meal and it had this real cachet that if you got ahead, you would eat a meat-centered diet. And what I learned is now one can summarize it this way, but these numbers that are pretty shocking, that we use overall worldwide about 80% of our agricultural land goes into producing meat, including grazing, but Meat only provides us 18% of our calories. So think of that built-in waste. We are wasting this vast potential. And so I called it a protein factory in reverse. <laughs> that actually to, of the protein that we feed to beef, that a consumer only gets 3% of that protein in the meat that they eat. That's the least efficient conversion. And that's really a sad conversion ratio, right? right? That's a lot of waste. So that was like, oh, I, I really thought that if people just knew that, that they would be so excited and they would say, oh, yeah, we don't have to starve. Nobody does. It's all about us and what we do and we can step up. And I thought it was this really positive message, right? Mm -hmm. That hunger is not caused by some in, you know, intractable natural force, we are creating it. So I wanted to share that. And it, I made a one page handout to just mm -hmm. share that good news. If we make it, then we could remake it. So as you were saying, right, 80% of agricultural land, including that for grazing, is devoted to livestock. And yet livestock provides less than a fifth of our calories, or as you said, about 18% of our calories. And that is wildly inefficient. So, right, we should be like maybe eating less meat, but that isn't to say that everyone should become a vegan or a vegetarian. 
that lifestyle isn't for everyone and it doesn't need to be. But having a diet based on plants and not meat is common in so many places and with so many cultures around the world. So can you tell us a little bit about why and how meat became such a huge part of the diet in the U.S. and how that spread around the world? Well, I think it has to do with the nature of this particular kind of market system that concentrates and concentrates wealth, that uh, a market system by itself could be set up in a way that kept the rules so that everybody could participate in that market, but not ours. We have a very simple market, highest return to existing wealth. That is the premise. And let me just back up and say that I think that we got to that because of this belief system. You see, I'm a big believer in the power of ideas and our belief system was that we humans are too selfish. All we can do is just look out for ourselves and let some immutable force, the market determine outcomes. And that's part of the mythology around the market. But ours is this very simple idea of our market driven by highest return to existing wealth. So wealth accrues to wealth, accrues to wealth until we get to this really tragic point where about 2,000 billionaires control as much. Um, in this case, I think it's the income, but it, however you do the, the income or wealth, it's highly concentrated. They control about 60%. So that's worldwide. Those at the top of the economic ladder are driving the productive uh, resources to serve the interest of those who have the money. And since mm -hmm. meat, because it uses all those resources, is more costly than uh, grain-fed, you know, uh, plant-centered with a lot of peas, beans, and lentils and things like that, along with the grains, that's a lot less expensive. And so mm -hmm. uh, the rich can afford this, and then it becomes status. And I, I really picked that up when I was growing up in Texas. I actually oh, grew yeah. up in a <laughs> city... Uh, the nickname of the, my hometown, Fort Worth, is Cowtown. <laughs> it's pretty funny. But then meat at the center of the meal did become a status symbol when you were in the class that could afford it. So I think it's the concentration of income and wealth built into our one rule economy, I call it, and combined with this cultural fixation on status and being better than the next guy because we're told that we all are in this competitive race. The concentration of wealth in that one rule economy, as you said, um, how does that impact like the ability of peasant and small scale farmers around the world to access land, operate a viable farm and feed themselves and their communities? Well, this has gone viral now as a due term, but, you know, this approach has been the approach of privatization of land, you know, that so much land over eons of time has been held communally so that people could work the land together and everyone benefit. But this idea from really from the 1970s onward and what was called structural adjustment approach to foreign aid and mm. neoliberal policies, it was all about how, oh, you've got to mimic us where everything is privatized and it's more efficient that way. So I think that was the big shift away from um, just people together in their communities, working out rules about who, who works together and who benefits from the fruits of their labor into this model of everything being a commodity. And, and that then also shifted a lot toward cash crops for export 
mm-hmm. which I wrote about when I helped to found Food First way back in the 70s. I was just so shocked then about discovering that, oh, these countries we think of are hungry, but they're exporting agricultural products. Why aren't they able uh, to grow food for themselves? And I learned more and more about the way that, again, this concentrated economic power was really shifting land away from the uh, control by indigenous people. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been a worldwide trend that we have to totally reverse. And it is happening. And actually that process that you were just talking about, structural adjustments um, and the way that we sort of pressure these countries to export high value crops, that whole system is actually what got me into this work to, to begin with. Um, I learned that in one of my classes and it just blew my mind and not in a good way. I was oh. like, oh my gosh, this is so horrible. Why Why are we doing this? I have to do something yeah, about it. It's not right? Right. Yeah. yeah. You write about one of your early travels to the Philippines and Diet for a Small Planet and the role of the U.S. and its underdevelopment. Can you tell us a little bit about that and like what you came across while you were there? Yes, I went to the Philippines with a friend on the, on <laughs> the surface, but our storyline was when we got there into rural parts of the Philippines because we wanted to get an inside look. We told the corporations that we were there to study the contribution of multinational corporations Uh. to the global food supply. And so they let us in and they let us talk to the pineapple workers in the fields who were being sprayed with pesticides, et cetera. And we got to see what the reality was that this land that could have been growing food for locals was instead these huge plantations growing um, export crops and under the most harsh conditions. And so we came back and wrote a report and that experience had a profound impact on me to see it firsthand. Thank you for sharing that. I want to go back to meat um, and actually more specifically fake meat. So the fake meat industry has grown rapidly over the past decade and continues to gain so much traction. And it's often marketed as a way to reduce meat consumption in order to subsequently reduce meat production and the impact that it has on greenhouse gas emissions. But I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the rise of these highly processed meat alternatives? Tiffany, the movement toward highly processed foods, now the term is ultra processed, but In general, this shift has been so dramatic. It's so bad for our health. And I see this this fake meat as part of the same reality that uh, 60% of the calories close to that are now, in the American diet, are now from this highly processed foods. We know we don't get the fiber we need. We don't get the mix of vitamins and minerals we need. And it's very dangerous. And this is why it is really part of the problem that is making our diet itself a major health challenge. The diabetes rate over the last 25 or so years is left fourfold, in part because of this highly processed diet. And I, I just feel that, that by feeding into the fake meat approach, rather than people enjoying the fruits of the earth directly, you know, the mm-hmm. wonderful variety of whole foods that we can access. It just perpetuates the problem. And um, I, I just think that 
it's so important that Americans understand what they're getting. Uh, I learned in writing this, I didn't realize that salt was such a huge health hazard, but it is. And um, just like one cup, say, of Campbell's soup mm -hmm. uh, gives you 80% of your salt needs for the whole day. So moving away from these highly processed foods is absolutely essential to our well-being. The evidence is, is all and across the board that a plant-centered uh, diet helps reduce mortality across, you know, a whole range of, of uh, challenges. Mm -hmm. And as you're saying, since the problem, problems that we're facing around food and hunger are due to a scarcity of democracy, these companies and these like meat alternatives aren't really doing anything to shift decision-making power, right? Like there's so many meat companies right. who are also investing in producing these alternative meats while engaging in business as usual, right? So like what we eat is important, but we should be thinking more about how what we are eating is produced. Right. And I think in a typical supermarket in most of our lives, we don't see how highly, highly concentrated the agribusiness industry is. I was just reading about Tyson Foods, for example, and you could look at the whole range of their products that, and you don't identify that it's all one company, you know, it's so concentrated. And I just learned that there are more agribusiness lobbyists in Washington than there are lobbyists from oil and gas. So they are really twisting the ears of, of our representatives to vote for that which is going to allow them to become even more concentrated and to not call them to pay, to be responsible for the damage to the earth and to our bodies that is resulting from their products. So it's, it's a very dangerous situation. And I know that you all are doing a lot to awaken people to that. And the first step of democracy is just seeing things as they are, not as, you know, the, the filter through which we're often made to think that, oh, we're so modern, we have such a wonderful industrial society that we're getting it right. No, 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 we yeah. are hurting badly. Okay, I want to shift gears and uh, talk about the, the latest edition, the newest edition of mm -hmm. the book. So what are some of the biggest changes in this edition? Well, uh, one, because of my daughter, Anna LaPay, <laughs> who really took on the challenge of the, the recipe part of the book. All of the recipes had been brought into the 21st century and really spruced up. And then in addition, we have some magnificent, magnificent offerings from some excellent plant-centered chefs. And so there's a lot to like about the new edition. Anna joked with me, Mom, do you realize that you had 70 references to margarine? I now know that the sugar industry was trying to divert us from worrying about sugar by telling us that fat was the problem. And uh. so everybody thought, oh, we got to avoid butterfat. So anyway, that's pretty funny. But all of that's gone. And they've all been, as I say, really um, spruced up and wonderful. So thank you, Anna, for that. <laughs> and then in the new opening chapter for the 50th anniversary edition, I really make pretty strong case, I think, is that what I discovered in 1970, you know, to write the book that came out in 71, was that this plant-centered eating, shifting away from the meat-centered, was a good choice, a healthy choice, and good for all concerned. But what I'm saying in the 50th anniversary edition is that it is 
an absolutely central choice. It is a no contest necessity that we are killing ourselves to feed ourselves. We now know that life itself <laughs> is at stake and that on so many levels that our food system has contributed to this decimation of life, to the loss of species, both insects and mammal species. I mean, it has been called the oncoming of the sixth great extinction and our mm -hmm. food system has any role to play in that. That's very scary. But also in climate change, it's estimated that our food system overall contributes about 37% of all greenhouse gas emissions heating our climate. And that's huge. I think that that is a big shift because I didn't understand then anything about the climate piece. Mm -hmm. um, that, that was just out of the question to consider then. But now it is the decimation of life through species decimation that our agriculture is causing, as well as the climate crisis that we have to make this turn now. And I'm just so excited that people are waking up to, to the larger issues of this connection with climate and with species loss. What changes over the past 50 years have been the most alarming? Well, the biggest is that we still have massive hunger in the world and that we are uh, still in a world in which one in three of us approximately do not have you know, access to the healthy food that we need, uh, at least that much. And that hunger continues, that is calorie-defined hunger continues. We have as many as 811 million people who've already been getting the calories that they need. Mm -hmm. So hunger is still a massive problem. We have to, again, recognize the root of it is people's lack of power and therefore are stepping up in every way we can to bring democracy to life so that we all have a voice to answer there. Mm -hmm. So that is certainly something that we have to deal with now more than ever, I feel. Mm -hmm. And I would add then climate change, which 37% of all greenhouse gas emissions mm -hmm. uh, are from our agriculture. And that then includes, for example, uh, in the Amazon, uh, Amazon forest, I mean, it's there. The loss of forests, 80% of that probably is coming from the push for cattle grazing and, right. and feed crops for cattle. So that's a huge impact on biodiversity and on our climate, for sequestering carbon. So I think that's another piece that uh, is so important for us to, to recognize. I think those are the you know, among the biggest changes. So on a lighter note, uh, what changes over the past 50 years have been the most inspiring? Well, I am so inspired by what's happening at the grassroots around the world and how in some cases that's really translating into policy changes. And I want to just take you to a couple of stories that I had direct experience with, fortunately. I'm so privileged to have visited for example, in, in India, uh, I got to visit not too far from Hyderabad, the uh, 75 villages called the Deccan Development Society. And this is an organization led by women. And I got to visit one of these groups in their village. 
And they told me how they had been absolutely destitute and were powerless. They were powerless vis-a-vis their husbands, their government, etc. And every day was a struggle of hunger to feed their children. They were desperate. And then they started meeting at night after the kids were in bed and started deciding that if they put these little bits of money together and enabled each other to get some control, either buy or rent some of the unused land and start growing healthy, diverse crops in it without pesticides, that that could be the way out of their hunger. And that was, you know, 20 to 30 years ago. And now they told me there is no hunger in their village. And this has gone to 75 villages and they meet regularly. And they've been now able to travel to South Africa, to South America, and to share their story with others. And now they have their own radio station so they can tell other people about how to do this. And now the local schools are using their crops to uh, feed uh, the children in their school lunches. So these are the lowest caste women Mm -hmm. in India as well. So that's an example that just so stirs me. And then I'll take you to um, Brazil where I got to go with Anna couple of decades ago, and we met with people there who were bringing all different sides of the communities together from religious groups to big farmers, small farmers, uh, the poorest people, you name it. And they together came up with a number of reforms to enable everyone to eat in the city. And this is a city of about two and a half million people, Belo Horizonte. It's called Belo Horizonte mm-hmm. in Upper Zidal. And in, you know, in a very short time, I mean, a little more than a decade, they were able to cut child death rates by something like 60%, some huge advance like that. Mm-hmm. And they were able to ensure that small farmers could sell their healthy foods in the inner cities and they created people's restaurants and then I got to eat in one of them. So anyone could get a healthy lunch for a little, just a little bit of money. So it was one of these examples of what I call living democracy, where everybody yeah. got their mix together and made a big difference. Right. Democracy in action. But actually, one of our former Real Food Reads picks was Beginning to End Hunger by Jahi Chappelle about Belo Horizonte. And there's lots of Real Food Reads connections, including, obviously, so many of the recipes in the latest edition of Diet for a Small Planet uh, were, were uh, contributed by former Real Food Reads guests. So, um what is one of the recipes from the new edition that you really enjoyed? I will tell you this little family story that there's one recipe that was in the original that has been spruced up, but it's, it's simply called walnut cheddar loaf. Mm-hmm. And it, you can kind of visualize it, but Anna and I, decades ago, that was a special meal that we created for a holiday. I think it was a Christmas in New York. So that comes to mind because it is still in the book and it has these deep family roots that uh, I enjoy talking about. But there are just so many of these that were offered to me by friends and then have been updated, sort of brought into the 21st century. That's lovely. And then I'm just curious, what do you see for the food system and for the world in the course of the, over the course of the next five years? Well, I see definitely a speeding up in the appreciation 
of organic farming that about 40% of us say that we have bought organic at some point in the recent past. Uh, there is a great uh, increase in organic acreage that's happening, and that's happening in southern states. I was so pleased to see that. I believe that was a doubling in about six southern states over about a five-year period. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of positive waking up to the dangers of this chemical corporate system. And that, to me, is really... And honestly, Tiffany, you know, when I began, when I was saying it was such heresy, and now I find that that the idea of plant-based, that, yes, you don't have to eschew all meat, but that the center of the meal can be plant foods and animal foods play solid, that it's really coming to be accepted <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's remarkable for for me and to see then how that could help us for uh, one of the great um, health problems of course in this country is diabetes mm-hmm. and when I uh, was working on this book I got a call from Eric Adams who's borough president in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and he told me that he had diabetes and he shifted over to a plant-based diet and it just healed itself and he was just so grateful he wanted me to know and I think he's one of really millions of people who are discovering that plant-based diet can heal Mm -hmm. um, as well as prevent so and it's true with cardiovascular disease as well Mm -hmm. and so I just think that that's going to continue I just feel that that with the work that you are doing and so many others, that it builds on people's desire for meaning and purpose in our lives and some power. And I think that one of the things I love about the work that you all are doing is that you don't play on people's guilt, oh, you're wrong for doing this or that, but rather, oh, look, (laughs) this is a win-win. You know, it's delicious, it's good for us, good for the earth. And it gives you a sense of meaning every day when you choose foods that you know are sending out ripples that are positive and not negative. So I think really that's the future of this is that we can address people's needs for power or meaning and connection with others. And food is such such an important avenue to meet those needs. So that's why I love your work so much. <laughs> and that's why that's what I think the future can be. That continue that positive message that this plant-centered eating and stop for the few, it, it's really a positive step for all of us. And it's full of rewards. Tasty so it's full of rewards. Tasting as well as healing. Yes, awesome. And just going back to what you were saying about diabetes and cardiovascular health. Um, I mean, I know so much of the issue around what people are eating has to do with marketing and what's accessible, whether that is physically accessible or economically accessible. And um, there's been this growing movement for food as medicine and doctors writing prescriptions and giving people more access to to vegetables and fruits. And I just love I love that that change is happening and is becoming is spreading out across the across the U.S. at least. It was really great talking to you, Frankie. And again, I just want to reiterate, so cool to be a part of this, like going, I was an intern at Food First and then going to Real Food Media and just being a part of this LePay legacy 
um, which is so rooted in, as you mentioned earlier, like not like feelings of guilt or scarcity, but really just about like our own liberation and how we can like together create a better world. It's a really powerful thing to be a part of. Thank you so much for your time, Frankie. So much fun. So much fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Real Food Reads podcast. Join the book club and find out about future books, author interviews, and other resources at www.realfoodmedia.org. To listen to Real Food Reads and our sister podcast, Foodtopias, look for Real Food Media wherever you get your podcasts. And you can support our work by leaving us a rating or review wherever you listen. If you'd like more information on Diet for a Small Planet or see any upcoming events featuring the always inspirational Frankie, visit www.dietforasmallplanet.org.